We're continuing our series this morning on the book of Romans, studying the letters that the Apostle Paul sent to the church in Rome with the help of Andrew Ollerton and his, his book, Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life. So as we all know by now, Andrew Ollerton uses the image of a mountain to separate out the different chapters of this book. And so far, we have traveled up one side of the mountain until last week when we reached the summit of hope, Romans chapter eight. And this is where we got to last week. And John used Romans eight to remind us that despite everything, God is for us, an amazing truth. As theologian John Stott points out, Romans eight is a pillow on which we can rest our weary heads. But this morning, we've got to move off from Romans 8. We've got to lift our heads from John Stott's pillow of rest. And we've got to tackle Romans chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapter 11. Now, Andrew Ollerton describes Paul's arguments in these chapters as feeling like the mist is closing in. He says that these chapters form the most dense and intricate argument anywhere in Paul's letters. And that is why he places these chapters in the cloud of mystery on his mountain image. I can safely say that after hours of reading and prep for today, I completely understand why Andrew Ollerton has placed these chapters in this shroud of mist. I have spent most of the week trying to get my head around theological debates and paradoxes that are far too big for me. Now, I, of all people, cannot do justice to three chapters of Romans this morning, or maybe any morning but I will try and give an outline of the message that Paul was sending to the church in these chapters and why some of these words in this letter from Paul to the church in Rome can feel like a cloud of mystery, can feel like a paradox. And then I'd like to focus a little more on rest, how we can rest in God's sovereignty and the challenge that Paul set the church in Romans chapter 10 and how we might take up this challenge to us this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word together this morning, may we hear from you and be inspired by who you are and your call on our lives. Amen. So Romans chapter nine to start with. Please do read it through if you have a spare moment this week. Maybe you've read it through as your homework for this morning, but my goodness. Have you ever been with someone who is so passionate about what they want to say that it all just comes out in a heap of words? The person is so eager for you to understand what they're trying to say, they don't give you any PowerPoint explanation, just lots of words. Well, this is how I read this chapter. God has chosen someone in Paul, someone with focus, passion, and drive to get the awesome job of building his church done. It seems as if whatever Paul seems to put his heart and soul into, he does with such passion and enthusiasm. He's someone who would not rest until their purpose in life was complete. And then they try and enthuse others and it spills out in enthusiasm and detail and endless drive and energy and they can't sit still until the job is done. Now Paul's letter to the Romans is full of such richness and historical reference, but it's really quite complicated. Now I know a few people like this that are so driven, they're amazing entrepreneurs and pioneers, but they're quite exhausting to be with and to listen to. I remember going to a book launch years ago with Jackie Pullinger. If you've ever read her story, wow, she's amazing. Goodness, is she exhausting. And she's actually quite blunt, but she was a passionate pioneer. I don't know if you've ever been with Andrew White. He's another one. Maybe you know some people yourself a bit like this. So what was it that Paul was so passionate and heated about in Romans 9 to 11? 
Well, as an overall summary, Paul is extolling the amazing sovereign plan of Israel, that God has for Israel. And lots of those listening to Paul's letter in Rome would have had this plan ingrained in their lives. But Paul is retelling the story that they know, but emphasizing that now Jesus is the climax. Everything has changed for the Jewish people with the coming of the Messiah. Now, not everyone has taken this retelling well. Paul has been saying and is now re-emphasizing the following, the gospel is for all, not just those with Jewish ancestry. He's saying Jesus is the true Messiah, the one that all the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. Now, this is amazing good news for the Gentiles and for the Jewish converts to Christianity. But Paul begins chapter nine with deep sadness for his fellow Jews. Paul knows that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but he's watching most of his fellow Jews reject this belief. Now, Tom Wright, theologian, describes this as being like leading a convoy and taking the right turn at a junction, and then watching in your mirror as all the convoy behind you take the left turn. Paul is desperate for the Jewish people to see who Jesus was. He's desperate for them to acknowledge what Jesus did for them, that he was their Messiah. He's desperate for them to declare with him that Jesus is Lord. Now, nowadays, the mass majority of the Christian church is actually consisting of non-Jewish people, people who don't have this Jewish DNA. So we might read these chapters as Gentile followers of Christ. We take the whole plan for Israel maybe out of the picture, and it all makes sense in our life. We know that we are saved. We know we can confess Jesus as Lord. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. So why does Andrew Ollerton entitle these chapters as the cloud of mystery, a place of mystery in the Christian life? What's the mystery for us now as followers of Jesus? Well, I can assure you that if you study Romans chapters nine to 11 and read commentaries from those who've studied these verses in depth, there are numerous mysteries to grasp. On top of the issues we've established that Paul was passionate to convey, which sometimes would still sit as a mystery to many, Paul is also highlighting the chap- in these chapters the mystery of how we hold God's sovereignty in one hand and humanity's freedom in the other. Now, according to Wikipedia, a person who is sovereign is one who exercises power without limitation. Sovereignty in God, of God in Christianity, though, can be defined primarily as the right of God to exercise his ruling power over his creation. So Paul is reiterating in these passages that the fact that God is sovereign means that he is in control and he's able to exercise his control over all creation. I love the idea that we have someone over everything who knows what they're doing. Someone over everything who loves everyone and loves all the people they're exercising power over. Someone who can see the end game. It sounds like a perfect sovereign, a perfect ruler, and maybe very different to the rulers that we see now ruling our nations. But the idea of sovereignty and faith throws up some big issues. If God is, so, is sovereign over all, then what is our role as mere humanity? Do we have free will? Is all our salvation already been predestined? Are we elected to salvation? Are we elected to service? What about Israel, that chosen nation? Now, this is something that's caused differences of opinion among Christians over the eras, over the ages and eras. You might be a Calvinist. 
You might believe that God has chosen his people already and nothing will change this. You might be an Arminian who believes that God has given people free will to make their own choice. You might believe that divine foreknowledge is in conflict with human action. Or maybe human actions are in part a response to divine foreknowledge. You might think that if God knows exactly what will happen, right down to every choice a person will make, it would seem that the freedom of these choices is called into question. Now, there will be people here who have thought about this and are clear about what these chapters are saying. They have established that they're a five-point Calvinist or a three-point Arminian and a two-point Calvinist. Others have tried to work it out and have become shrouded in a cloud of mystery and sit with this mystery, and others probably wonder why on earth it's important in the first place. Now, in 1998, John had a conversation with a potential training incumbent when we were looking for a curacy after theological college. That vicar's first question to John on the phone was, so, are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? To him, this was the crucial answer above everything, how John viewed the sovereignty of God in one hand and the human action in another. Now, whatever John's answer was, it wasn't the right one because he didn't <laughs> offer the job. Who here has considered whether they have a Calvinist or an Arminian view of God's sovereignty, of divine foreknowledge and human action? Well, to try and make sense of this, I watched a YouTube video of theologian Tom Wright being asked about predestination and free will. And I was relieved to hear him say the following. Romans 9 to 11 is the most hugely difficult and wonderfully intricate and complex passage. He was then keen for readers of Romans to see that he thinks chapters 9 to 11 are so much more than this debate on predestination and free will. He sees them as being all about Israel. At least I think that's what he was trying to say. Apparently, Andrew Ollerton, he's the author of the study that we're looking at. He studied this, these passages for years, and as part of his PhD, he looked at this particular topic. And at the end of his studies, he was still unsure as to which way to vote. He summed up the paradox as following. These truths must be held in tension. It's a mystery that reminds us that we need to stay humble and not presume that we can solve every problem. So if God is sovereign, then what is our role? Do we need to pray? After all, he's sovereign. If he's sovereign, then why does bad stuff happen in the world? If God is sovereign, then what does he need me for? Another question, have you ever pondered the paradox of light? I know Gordon will have done Gordon. Yeah? I can definitely say before last week I hadn't, as you, many of you know me would know. Now, apparently physicists agreed that light sometimes behaves as particles and other times as waves. He's nodding at me, he's a physics teacher. <laughs> now, I rang our middle son, Tom, who has the PhD in physics in our family, and I asked if he could explain the paradox of light to me. Now, he told me to look at the double-slit experiment and sent me a YouTube link. Having watched the link, I'm in no position to explain the experiment to you, <laughs> but to see that there seems to be an apparent contradiction as to how light behaves. And for now, apparently, in the quantum physics world, these two observable facts sit alongside each other as a paradox. A paradox is defined as a statement or proposition which, despite sound, or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems logically unacceptable or self-contradictory. 
In the same way, Andrew Ollerton states that Romans 9 to 11 are pleased to highlight a paradox with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The fact that God is in control and yet we as human beings are responsible for actions have to be held together. They have to sit alongside each other. Nikki Gumbel, author of Alpha, says that often the truths of the Bible are not at one pole or another, and nor are they in between, but they're at both poles at the same time. He says there are mysteries that the Bible doesn't solve for us. And in these times, Nikki Gumbel says that he has to conclude with the psalmist in Psalm 139 that such knowledge is just too wonderful for me. Nikki Gumbel concludes, continues in that, that quote to say that we need to hold onto the truth of election and free will, of divine foreknowledge and human action at the same time and say, help me to trust you when my understanding fails. Now, after spending hours reading arguments on these chapters, I have to sit with this prayer too. Help me, Lord, to trust you when my understanding fails. We have to acknowledge that God is sovereign ruling over his kingdom, and will never fully understand God's ways, which as Paul says in chapter 11, are unsearchable. There are mysteries in life that cannot neatly be resolved and don't make sense to us. There's loss, there's unanswered prayers, there's unfulfilled promises. Romans 9 to 11 is a reminder that being Christian does not mean that we have all the answers. Rather, we have somewhere to go with all our questions. We have a lovely, loving Heavenly Father who we can trust even when life doesn't make sense. We have to trust our Heavenly Father in the clouds of mystery. We have to live with both these truths. We have to trust in God's sovereignty and we have to take responsibility for our own actions or the part that we've been called to play. Now in this age of scientific explanations, it's hard to sit with mystery Humanity is endeavoring through science and research to make sense of everything. But Frederick Beekner, an American author, says, there are mysteries that can be solved by taking thought. For instance, a murder mystery whose mysterious news must be dispelled in order for the truth to be known. So there's so many murder mysteries on TV where the murder seems impossible and then Sherlock Holmes turns up and works it all out and solves the mystery. But Frederick Beekner continues to say that God is a mystery, is to say that you can never nail him down. Even on Christ, the nails proved ultimately ineffective. So you may read chapters 9 to 11, and this sermon's not helped you at all to have any more. You've just got more questions than answers. But I believe that we must trust God with these mysteries that are beyond our understanding. As St. Augustine famously said, if you can understand it, it probably isn't God. Mystery reassures us that our faith is rooted in something transcendent, something that's beyond our comprehension. Maybe the whole mystery and God's overall sovereignty are why Paul finishes these chapters with the, with the verses from chapter 11 that we had read earlier to us. They're originally found in the book of Isaiah. And they say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is as if Paul is saying to us, this is as far as we can go sometimes in understanding God's sovereign purpose. So in the midst of the cloud of mystery, 
we need to hold on to the fact that this God can be trusted in the face of life's unanswered questions. We need to know that because God is sovereign, he will fulfill his promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to know that he has promised to work out all things for good, not necessarily that all things will be good. We need to know deep down that the sovereign God who rules over the nations is also our Abba Father, our Father, dear Father. Now Paul takes us from that mountaintop experience where we acknowledge the amazing truth of the gospel. And in the midst of the mystery, he reminds the church in Rome and us today that in all of this mystery, we have a part to play. So what's our part? Well, we read it in Romans 10. It's our responsibility to ensure that the message of Jesus is clearly and lovingly communicated. So we're going to have a very brief look at these verses that we had read earlier from Romans 10. Now, Paul uses the word preach here. Now, our understanding of this word is slightly different now. We think of preach as someone standing up the front. But in those days, the word would have been defined more accurately as a herald or a news bearer. Now, we have to picture what it was like when a herald would have been the only way of communication. A herald would travel to cities announcing major news events. Now, until the herald arrived, no one will have heard the news. It's a concept that's hard to grasp in our current world of immediate communication. A herald's message would have been an up-to-the-minute relevant message. Now, imagine living in a remote, closed-off community and you're desperately waiting for news, and then it comes, and you actually feel an immense sense of gratitude for the herald, the preacher, the deliverer of the news, as if the news was their action to give. Paul says this in Romans 10 when he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Now, this verse is from an emotive quote from Isaiah. And if we look back to Isaiah at that time, it would have been in response to a messenger, a herald running over the mountains and the rugged terrain to announce that the shame of their exile was over. Now, when the recipients realized the risk taken to convey the news and the wonderful nature of the news, they shouted out what beautiful feet this herald had. Have you ever got such great news that you could kiss the messenger? Our post is more private now, but if a herald arrived and gave you the most amazing news, then you might pour out all your gratitude on the deliverer of the message. It would have made being a postman a lot more interesting. (laughs) Have you ever had such good news that you wanted to tell someone that you're overflowing with excitement? Now, when John and I got engaged, we waited for my mum and dad to get home to tell them. So I'm going to be rude about you now. Now, if you you know my mum, she was... Very, very chatty. Is that right, Mum? Yes. And my dad loves a good story. So we were sitting in the living room with my mum and dad, waiting to tell them our good news that we got engaged. We waited and waited for a gap in the conversation (laughs) before John suddenly burst out, sorry, Jill, I need to stop you. Or I think he actually said, can you shut up? (laughs) He said, I want to marry your daughter. We had great news to share, and we were bursting to tell other people. Paul was so eager to get the Christian church in Rome to herald, to share, to preach the amazing news of the gospel, saying that people will not know of that amazing truth unless someone communicates it with them. Telling others is our responsibility before God. What we do about this has eternal consequences. Each one of us here is called to be a herald of the good news. 
is called to have the same passion that Paul had for his fellow Jews who'd gone the wrong way at the fork in the road. Same passion to move out of our comfort zones and speak of the hope that we have in Jesus. Paul said he would be willing to lose his faith for others to find it. Is that how you feel about sharing the gospel with others? Now this was some challenge set, to Paul, set by Paul to the church in Rome and it's a big challenge I think for us today. It's something that we know that as Christians we're called to do, but why do we not do it? It is actually our calling when the opportunity is given and in the spirit of humility to share Christ with those of our relatives and friends and neighbors and colleagues who do not yet know him. Now how many people here find it easy to herald the good news, to tell everyone about their faith and love for Jesus? I don't know if any of you have played the would you rather game Things like, would you rather see into the future or be able to change the past? Would you rather be invisible or be able to read minds? We played this game once at a women's event and I, I included the question, would you rather wear a bikini on Kobo Beach or give a speech to a thousand people? Now, Mark Green from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity says that interestingly from research, given a choice between evangelism and a dental appointment, Many of those surveyed would rather go to the dentist. He goes on to say that we might actually have a negative attitude to evangelism because we have a false view of what everyday evangelism is. There's very few of us here who are great platform evangelists. We're not Billy Graham or J. John. We don't have the intellectual acuity of a university professor. We're not Tom Wright or Tim Keller. Mark Green continues to say that all we are asked is to grasp the truth of the gospel and pass it on. He notes that actually, and it's true, the closer we are to God though, the more incredible the truth of the gospel feels and the more compulsion to let this overflow to those around you. All God asks of us is that we're willing to give the reason for the hope that is within us. It's a reference from 1 Peter. So why would we keep this to ourselves? It's quite selfish really. It's almost another paradox that if we want to live a meaningful life, we must sacrifice ourselves for the cause of Christ. Heralding the good news to all will be hard and sacrificial, but it is our calling. Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What would it mean for us here to have beautiful feet, to go out of our way to share God's love? So in closing, rather a complex passage for today with some mysteries of faith that can cause confusion and maybe differences. Sometimes we just have to say, help me to trust you, Lord, when my understanding fails. And maybe this is why Paul finishes these chapters with the verses that were read to us earlier from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To God be the glory forever. And a question that we could maybe ponder, where will your beautiful feet carry you this week. Remember that on your front lines, even with all your questions, 
you were called to be a herald of the most beautiful news. I would love us to take a moment to reflect on this question, where will your feet carry you this week before we leave this place? In a moment, I'm going to give you all a card that you can fit in your purse or your wallet or your phone cover or your Bible. On one side of this card will remind you that you are a herald of beautiful news. And on the other side, it's going to be a prompt to pray for those whom you know who need to hear this news. So I just wonder if these cards can be handed out. They're dotted around, I believe. Once you have your card, may I encourage you to sit in silence. We're going to have a few minutes of silence where we can ask God to prompt us by his spirit to think of the names of one, two, or three people who you might write on your card, who you might be willing to commit to praying for this week. People you want to pray for that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've got someone in your family as a prodigal and you'd love them to come back to Christ. Now, once you've got your card, you can, if you've got a pen, you can write them now, or you can think about this later. And then keep this card somewhere as a prayer prompt, and maybe even a prompt for your beautiful feet. So with this verse that's on the card, we're going to be quiet for a few moments. We're going to reflect on this verse, and then Chris will lead us in worship as we come to take communion together. So Father, I thank you that you have given us so much to read in your word. I thank you that even when we stand and it feels confusing, that we can know that you are sovereign. You are in charge over all things. And as you give us this um, instruction to go out and preach the good news to those around us, Lord, I just pray that you would prompt us to think about how we can have beautiful feet this week, how we can carry your good news to those people around us. Let us not forget what we've got with these cards. Let us remind ourselves every day of what you're calling us to do for the people that we've named. And so, Father, we just pray that you would go before us and you would help us to speak out your word to others in Jesus' name. Amen.